Hello everyone and welcome back to my tiny corner of the universe, the third Sade's World short story podcast. Yay! Okay, um, really sorry actually because last time I mentioned that there were about three or four podcasts left to do but there's actually only the one, the one after this one. So one, one last story to do. So sad phase. Okay, now happy phase because uh, narrating these two stories that we have for today is the amazing Joy Elias Rewan. So for this episode of the podcast, we have two stories. The first one is My Mother's Stew and the second one is Ego Betao. And some of you might have heard Ego Betao on the BBC's World Service. I think I it was about... I think three years ago anyway I can't remember when but I was commissioned to write a short story for Nigeria's 50th independence anniversary okay one of the things I have forgotten to do with the last two podcasts is to actually hit you up for a donation um if you've been on my website you would have read the podcast page and know that I'm working on a collection of short stories. The podcasts um, that you've heard so far are part of that collection and it'll be nice to be able to go back into the studio with um, an actress or an actor. So however little you can afford to donate, every little bit will help. So please donate. There's a button on the website. Click on it and it'll take you to PayPal. So yeah. Okay, without further ado, here's the amazing Joy Elias Rimwan reading Ego Betao and My Mother's Stew. Ego Betao. The first thing that hit Okumbo Banli as he disembarked from the plane was a wall of heat that immediately sapped the energy from his already weary limbs. The six-hour flight from Heathrow had been uncomfortable and cramped, and for a good deal of the journey, he regretted not taking his father up on his offer of a first-class ticket back home. But the idea of him as the prodigal son, returning in style with money swindled from the country's coffers, didn't sit well with him. His life would have been so much easier if only he'd been able to toe the family line and turn a blind eye to the injustices that were a daily occurrence. He hoped things had changed, but he doubted it. The sad truth about the country he loved is that, despite the abundance of natural resources Nigeria had, the poor have always and will always continue to suffer at the hands of the ruling elite. Democracy had changed nothing. It only made things worse. Last week, he'd been at a friend's birthday party, and as per usual for these occasions, the talk turned into a political debate about the state of the country. The consensus was to get rid of the current ruling elite, but as per usual with these debates, no one had a concrete plan on how to change the status quo. While there was a lull in the conversation, Yemi told a joke which cut too close to the bone, as humours want to do. There was a Brit and a Nigerian with their backs against the wall. He began in his seronious voice. The Brit was pushed against the wall 
and came back fighting with a legendary bulldog spirit. The Nigerian was pushed too. However, rather than fight back, he pushed the war back instead. That, my friends, is the Nigerian mentality. A weak chorus of laughs greeted the punchline as the debaters recognised the grain of truth in the joke. No one could argue with history. As if on cue, someone turned up the music and the melodic voice of Sam Cooke, crooning about a change gonna come, drifted through the speakers. The men raised their bottles to change and said the ubiquitous Nigerian prayer with one voice. Ego betao. Is this your first visit to our great country? asked the board customs official as he flicked through Tokumbo's passport. No, it's not, he replied, slightly irritated. And why are you coming to Nigeria? I'm here for my mother's funeral. Ah, I'm sorry for your loss, grumbled the officer as he stamped the passport. Mr. O'Banley, he paused. Hmm, you must be the son of our esteemed state governor. Me? I cannot afford my child's school fees, and his children live abroad away from the disgrace. <laughs> That's our country. Tell your father we're suffering, oh. Outraged, his voice raised slightly as he handed back the passport. Maybe if they spent our money on hospitals, your mother would be alive. Tokumba grabbed his passport and headed for the exit. He was seething and almost missed his half-brother, Chidi, flanked by two gun-totting policemen calling his name. Yeah, talks, man. Tokumba visibly cringed at the pseudo-American accent. Yo, what's up, man? So you finally made it home, man? How long has it been, man? Tokumba had been hoping to take a taxi and wished he hadn't emailed his flight details. One of the bodyguards signalled a porter who grabbed Tokumba's suitcase. There was a brief struggle before he finally gave in to the inevitable rather than attract more attention. People already started to point and stare. Chidi didn't help the issue by strutting like an arrogant cock, beckoning Tokumba to follow. Outside the airport doors, a throng of people stood patiently waiting for their loved ones. Interspersed within the crowd was the occasional placard carrying the name of a foreign businessman. Jerry Ryan read one of the signs held by a white-haired man in an ill-fitted polyester suit. Bound to be an Irishman heading for the Shell offices, Tokumbo thought to himself. The early morning sun pierced through the thick layer of pollution and brought beads of sweat to Tokumbo's forehead. He could feel dark patches starting to form under his arms and, as he slipped on a pair of two-for-one prescription sunglasses, he caught a whiff of his own body odour. Outside the terminal and parked illegally stood a black Mercedes ML 63 AMG with tinted windows. It was sandwiched between two police jeeps with more gone-toting policemen Oblivious to the stairs, Chidi sauntered over to the SUV and jumped in the front seat, while Tukumbo followed slowly, aware of the hundreds of resentful eyes following his progress.
One of the bodyguards took the suitcase from the porter and slung it into the boot, while the porter waited expectantly. Chidi, have you got some money to spare? I haven't got any naira on me, Tokumbo said to his brother. Oh, God, give me pound now. I'll go change on myself, interceded the porter. Tokumbo looked askance at the porter. He had no intention of giving him the fifty-pound note he had in his pocket. Yeah, take. Come out for my way, said a voice from the bowels of the SUV. An arm encased in a white lace agbada reached out of the window, proffering a handful of nara to the porter. The first thing Tokumba saw as he pulled himself into the car and composed himself were the tips of his father's Italian loafers. Dad, good morning, he added after a pause. After ten years. All you have to say is, Dad, good morning. How are you? Eh? I'm good. It is not easy, but we are surviving. An uncomfortable silence descended as Tokumbo looked at his father, resplendent in clothes that probably cost more than his monthly mortgage payments, and he didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Instead, he looked out of the window as they sped along the Oshodi Expressway. Not that they could go very fast. Despite the blaring sirens from their escorts, the notorious Lagos Ghostlows had already slowed them down to an almost crawl. Hawkers slowed them down even more as they weaved in between cars selling everything and anything from ice water to mobile phone cards. He watched a girl on her way to school jump nimbly over the open sewers, filled with waste, and he could imagine the putrid stench emanating from it. As the SUV battled his way through a pothole the size of a crater, a profound sadness overcame Tukumbo as he watched what democracy had brought for the majority of the population. Bad roads, no electricity, a poorly educated working class, a lack of sanitation, no running water to over 90% of households. The list was never-ending. Deep down, he knew that the debaters at his friend's party were right and that the only way to change things was for ordinary Nigerians to rise up in rebellion. But he was no martyr. Instead, he closed his eyes to the impoverishment and prayed the ubiquitous Nigerian prayer. One day, Igo Betao. My mother's stew. As I arrived at my brother's house, the aroma of stew cooking on the hob drifted through the open window. It smelled like my favourite, a goosey and bitter leaf. My stomach rumbled as the smell of spices and palm oil wafted up my nose. I felt like an addict about to fall off the wagon. It had been a while and they were pulling out all the stops. I took another sniff, and with it came a worn memory from childhood. My brain pressed rewind, and I was twelve again, and not only 
could I smell mum's stew? But channel number five, mingled with sweat, also tingled my olfactory senses. I blinked, and instead of the brass knocker, I saw the curve of a smile. It lit up her whole face and revealed gleaming white teeth, which would have been perfect but for the large gap between the incisors. Dad called her Gappy. I was eight when I finally figured out it was not her real name. Once upon a time, I called her Gap Mum. She'd laugh and squeeze me tight and place a kiss on the top of my head. It was the day of my twelfth birthday. I had gone to bed excited because Mum was throwing a big party. But most importantly, Femi Bolade, whom I had the biggest crush on, was coming. He was 18 and my brother's best friend. I didn't stand a chance with him, but I still dreamt of the moment. I was a gangly and pimply prepubescent teen and thought I knew everything there was to know about anything and I was in a huge hurry to grow up, mainly because I wanted him to notice me, minus the annoying pimples. That morning, Mum dragged me out from under my care bear quilt. I was in the space between waking and still dreaming about kissing Femi Bolade on the lips and very much resented being shaken out of my dream. She insisted on taking me food shopping in Peckham, a weekly ritual I abhorred. Peckham was the only place she liked to go to buy the Nigerian produce Dad used to cook. It was summer, and Peckham on a hot summer's day brings with it the sounds and smells of Lagos or Kingston. Whiffs of overripe mangoes, pawpaw, melon and other produce blended with snatches of Yoruba and Jamaican patois as old women haggled over prices and got reacquainted. Mum never liked to linger. We always went straight to Mr Gupta on the corner who unfailingly had our order ready when we arrived. All Mum did was half-heartedly haggle over the price of yam and plantain before we headed back to the car and back to the other side of town. That was the summer. Everything changed. She decided we needed to learn more about our culture. So she enrolled us in Yoruba classes, made us African outfits, and drastically changed our diet. But then... It all unraveled, and I found out. A familiar knot tightened in the bowels of my stomach as the brass knocker came back into focus. My eyes swam, and I shook my head, remembering where I was. They were all in there. Vague shapes moved through the netted curtains. My hand dropped to my side without lifting the knocker and I turned and walked away. I still wasn't ready to forgive the lie. I wasn't ready to accept what was. That they weren't my real family. That I wasn't Nigerian. That I wasn't anybody. That I wasn't anything. 
I was that unwanted baby, abandoned in a skip. That was Joy Elias Rewan reading My Mother Stew and Ego Betal. I hope you enjoyed those two stories. As I mentioned earlier, we have one podcast left to do. So in the meantime, please get donating. Any amount is welcome. If you need to comment, question, go to my website, shardays-world.com or you can tweet me at imagine underscore this and I'll be speaking to you real soon. Bye.